0: Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Lizette Kingo. She is the founder of The Angel Project. How are you doing today, Lizette?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I I know that you and I have been trying to connect and get this done for a while now. So I'm very happy and grateful to finally have you here and be able to talk with you and learn a bit about your story and your journey and share it with the community.
1: Yeah, this is amazing. I know we've been trying to piece things together. It's been a little bit crazy with uh, with COVID, with my health, my patients needing me. So I do apologize, but I'm so grateful to be here today.
0: Oh, no reason to apologize. It's divine timing. It worked out when it was supposed to. So as long as you're here, that's all that matters. I'm happy to have you here. And I'm very, very grateful and appreciative for you taking the time to be here. So let's uh, let's jump right in. So, Lisette, you are an entrepreneur you, I am. you are, your family are war survivors. You fled your country and came to Canada after most of your family have been murdered in the war. You have a degree in psychology, you were a model, and you are the owner of, or founder, sorry, of the Angel Project. How old were you when you fled to Canada?
1: So uh, that's a little bit wrong there, actually. Like, okay. it, my my parents fled Estonia and Finland and came to Sweden. Okay. And that's where I grew up. And ah, okay. I've been trying to decide how honest I need to be. And I think for the first time I've I've hit an age where maybe I need to, you know, I have been on so many TV interviews. I've been on a lot of newspaper articles and done podcasts in the past.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I think this is the first time where I'm going to decide to be completely honest with you. And I've never done that. This Mm -hmm. is very raw. And I actually spent a few hours this morning uh, talking to my husband about it. And,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, most people think I left Sweden because I came from, you know, a family of entrepreneurs that made it from nothing. You know, my father hit on a boat from Estonia to come and he started out there on his own. He was in the war at 15. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was at, both my families uh, had a very difficult background. I never met anyone from my dad's side. You're correct. They, they were all killed in the war. And it's actually something that I'm working on putting pen to paper on right now telling that story. That's
2: amazing. But
1: we came under difficult circumstances anyway, because my father and my brother actually left Sweden in the middle of the night when I had no idea. We were very close. And he said, I'm leaving. Oh. And I'm going with dad and you're going to be okay. And he, you know, they left and I woke up and my, my life changed dramatically. And the next day I went to school, like nothing had happened. Yeah. And my friend got me out of class and they said, you know what, your dad in the newspaper. And they said that there had been, you know, there, there, there were questions in one of his hotels burning and, and it was just a very dirty, ugly story. And I was very young mm-hmm. and, For a year, my father and brother lived in Canada before my mother and I joined them. Okay. And the reason why we came to Canada was because my dad had searched his whole life for a surviving relative. You know, he just needed some sort of connection. Of course. And he found a great aunt that lived in Toronto. And that's what brought us to Canada. Okay. But coming here was different. I didn't know anything about the country. I right. never thought we were moving. I was very, you know, settled in Sweden. I came here at, uh, you know, 15 the first time and I was dropped off at the parking lot of a high school and it was going and register
2: oh my and, uh,
1: and do your thing. And I mean, I remember standing there thinking I can't cry because the kids are going to make fun of me. Right. And I walked into the school and I somehow found my way and ended up in the principal's office and registered myself for high school. Holy. So that day after school, I needed to get home. Right. And I had no idea where I lived.
2: Of course. I, yeah.
1: I didn't know how to get there. I was in the town. I barely spoke the language. I saw a bunch of yellow school buses at the front, but I didn't know if any of them were for me. Yeah. So I ended up wandering in the town And I wandered for hours in the general direction where I thought we had come from that morning. And all of a sudden, this young guy on a dirt bike (laughs) started biking around me. And he was like, yo, aren't you that new chick from Sweden? (laughs) And uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm from Sweden. And he was like, you live in Becky's old house. And I'm like, I do? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, can you show me where that is? <laughs> and he showed me, you know, the way to the house. And that's the beginning of the end for how I got settled in Canada.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. That is unbelievable. I mean, you must have been scared out of your wits. Like, not you're, you're in a completely new country, in a new city. You don't know anybody. You get dropped off in a parking lot and told to go register for school. You don't know where you live. Like, that's...
2: no. and I barely spoke
1: English yeah well looking at it now when I have kids that are older than that I think huh maybe that wasn't the way to do it but that's how it it was done and I don't think I've ever shared that story but you know Luke Cronky if you're listening to this you're the guy on the dirt bike and I will never forget you so
0: (laughs) that is absolutely crazy (laughs)
1: That's just the beginning. So, <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I'm sure we'll get more into. Wow. So, Lizette, how did you find those first couple of years and acclimating to basically a new world?
1: I, I found them lonely,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I found that the world judges you on your appearance mm-hmm. and what they think they know. And I mean, that's so cliche, and it's something we all talk about today. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. Blah blah blah. But I mean, especially when it comes to children, I think we need just to learn to look deeper a little bit. And I did find that I definitely connected more with men than I did with women. Right. And the friends that I have had for life since then are, you know, mostly guys. Okay. Yeah. Because it, when, when I came to the high school, I was, uh, you know, from Sweden, Oh, I, I became, you know, a a slut or a tramp where I had oh never kissed gosh. a boy right but that's what happens when you you know I was blonde I I didn't speak English very well I you know it, it was a difficult time but we got through it I'd only been here a few years when my dad passed away he became very sick from um, pancreatic cancer and he was you know a man that had never believed in There was no such thing as sickness. Like I had severe allergies growing up and he thought they were a hoax, for example. So, you know, I was very allergic to egg, for example, and he would give me an egg and put me into anaphylactic shock because he thought it was just that I didn't want to eat an egg. So, you know, for him to see him sick Mm. was very strange. Right. The one thing that I'm very grateful for is that he never spoke about his past until Mm. he got sick. And the fact that I didn't run away, I actually took the time at 17 Uh to look after him and to take pen to paper and write down some of the stories that he mumbled through his morphine induced blabber and then go and research and find out more about my family. That was very, I'm very happy that I did that. I'm very happy that I had those three months with him. Before That's incredible.
0: You must have got some pretty incredible stories, and I'm sure to write and and wow. I mean, I guess that generation are are of the mindset, oh, just toughen up. You can deal with it. This is this is not what you're saying. This is bullshit. You don't have allergy. Just toughen up and take it, kind of thing. Right? right.
1: Absolutely. That's the generation for sure. Yeah. And then my mother was, I guess, the opposite of you know, there was the dominant man. Yeah. And then she could have been anything she wanted. Absolutely stunning woman Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with a heart of gold, but she just didn't have that in her to go on her own. She didn't have that confidence, right?
0: But I mean, at least you had that balance where your father was that way and your mother was more. And of course, mothers mm -hmm. and and women are typically more the nurturing type than men. Men are just like, ah, just deal with it. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Or like, Thinking about boys growing up and their fathers said, oh, boys don't cry and don't be emotional. Stop get, stop acting like a girl or, you know, that type of thing where the mothers are more nurturing and caring and helpful in that way where the fathers are just like, oh, come on, get over it.
1: And, you know, I look at, I look back and I think that often I was perceived as being the tough one in my family from a very young age. Right. That I could handle it and I was fine. And, you know, that generation and my father coming from the war and so on, you can imagine he, he had a few drinks, yeah. you know, Yeah. and it happened quite frequently. And, you know, I know being four years old I would be woken up and be the one sent downstairs to try to get my dad to bed because if anyone else did it there would be a fight or there would be but I had those negotiating tactics (laughs) even back then you know like you had to conform to the situation and I would be able to bring him up to bed and tuck him in and you know, tell him a story at four or five years old, reversed roles, you know, yeah. and everyone else in the, in the house would pretend to be sleeping. But if I didn't go down, he would leave again and he'd be right. gone for three days. Yeah. And things would get worse, right? But I mean, um,
0: that's a hell of a responsibility to put on to a four and five year old, even a 10 year old for crying out loud. That's like you, it almost sounds like you didn't have the opportunity to be a kid. You had to grow up and be an adult almost. At that young age, I think that's horrible that any child should have to go through that and not be able to live as a child.
1: I have never shared this. Mostly in my (laughs) interviews and podcasts and whatnot, you know, we talk about working at a forensic psychology hospital, writing a manual, teaching classes, the Angel Project. But this is me. This is raw me. And this is where I came from and what shaped me into the woman that I am today. And I think saying it out loud for the first time is making me realize you're right, that, you know, that it's not perhaps normal or healthy. No. I th- but I, it does wow. shape you.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, you had to grow up and be an adult very, very quickly and very, very young. I am honored and flattered that you are sharing this part of you and part of your story with me here for the first time. I'm beyond flattered and honored. Thank you so much for sharing these moments with me. Well,
1: thank you for providing the, the the vessel and for my journey.
0: Well, it's it's my honor. I love doing what I do. So
1: my family had restaurants and hotels and eventually a cruise liner okay. in Sweden growing up. So okay. you know it's interesting because one of the nights as a reward when I was ten years old, I had worked and you know we were opening a new grocery store. And my dad said to me that once you finish marking all the products as a reward, you get to set up one of the front window displays because I was quite creative and that was something I really wanted to do. And I was, you know, 10 and he said, I will trust you to do this window display once you're done. And I remember phoning my mother to tell her that I was still with dad at the store and that I was going to stay late because I was going to get to set up this window and my best friend, our neighbor, their phone number was one digit off from ours. And it was mm-hmm. about 1.30 in the morning. And I dialed the phone. And my, my neighbor's mother, Rebecca's mother, answered the phone. And she said, what are you doing at 1.30 in the morning? You know? Yeah. Ah. And I told her, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I was trying to call mom. And I said, I'm at the store with dad. And, you know. Yeah. And the following day, she came over to the house. And she asked to speak to my dad. Right, and he said, "What are you doing, keeping your daughter up at 30 in the morning?" And I'll never—I was mortified. I was standing beside my dad. I was—I was mortified. Yeah, and because uh, you know, I brought this on by misdialing the phone, yeah. and I thought, "I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to—I'm going to pay for this misdial." And my dad looked her straight in the eye, and he said, "In." 10 years, come back and ask me that same questions, And we see where your daughter is in life and we'll see where my daughter is in life. Oh, 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 and he
2: wow. got a door
1: in his face. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> what an answer. And we never spoke of it again.
0: Wow. You, you never spoke of it with your dad, your mom, thing. the neighbors, nothing? It no. Was never, wow.
1: Nope, nothing. It never came up again. And I think I think now, you know, having lost him at such a young age, I I think he'd be he'd be proud.
0: Yeah, I think, I'm, I'm I think sure he would. Proud. I'm sure he's looking down <laughs> on you proud, Lisette. I'm sure he is. But that I mean, so, that, well. that goes back to saying though, what incredible responsibility you were was expected of you at a young age. That most ten year olds are not doing that. I mean, most ten year olds are, of course, in bed at one thirty in the morning, but they're not working at the grocery store. They're, they're playing with their friends outside and they're being kids.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what brought me into overdrive of trying to be super mom when I had kids on my own. So (laughs) everything, everything builds on the next step as we climb. Right.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's obviously um, again, as you mentioned, these experiences are what shaped you and made you the Lizette you are today. So Everything happens for a reason, and you learn from these experiences, and you are who you are because of it. So, Absolutely. Now, as mentioned, you obtained a degree in psychology at Western. Did you ever end up doing anything with that degree in terms of working in that field? I did, actually.
1: My my husband and I moved back to Sweden. You know, I married a uh, Swedish gentleman who had been studying in the United States. And okay. when he came to Canada, he um, wasn't able to work here for about six to eight months, I believe, before he got his work permit. Okay. And we had purchased our first house. And, you know, we worked night and day on um, trying to maintain that house. And we had an opportunity. We um, we moved to Sweden for a few years. And that's where I worked in a forensic psychology hospital called Kashuden, And it's actually... The strictest hospital in Sweden—it's for the criminally insane. Wow! So the least you could have done to end up at Kashuden would be to commit murder. So some of those stories are that we learned, and the people that we worked with in there—they're very interesting stories. That's I'm a whole sure. different podcast in yeah, itself. I
0: was going to say,
1: but, yeah,
0: create an episode out of that one for sure. We
1: can. I have stories that would, you know, that
0: <laughs> so that
1: to. was one way I applied the psychology
2: okay. and
1: but before before we left and even before I went to school because I actually didn't go back to school until I was older
2: okay. I
1: worked as a private investigator for many many years
2: wow
1: and yeah so I uh <laughs> I was going to start university yeah. but a girl friend of mine was working in Toronto for an investigation firm yeah. And she said, there are no female investigators and there's an undercover for the summer coming up. Okay. And, you know, I would love for you to work this undercover. And I've already cleared it with my boss. You just have to have an interview with the OPP and we can issue you a temporary private investigator's license. And I thought, well, an undercover you see is wonderful because you actually get two paychecks. You get one from the investigation firm and you get one from where you're working, you're undercover.
2: Okay.
1: So I took the job as, a, as an investigator and the gig was supposed to run for three months. Yeah. So I had three months to figure out this, this crime that I was investigating <laughs> and it took me two days. <laughs> and I knew exactly, you know, who did what, who was, where the money was. It was, it was fascinating. It took two days. Wow. And a rollerblade with the owner at the at you know the beach beaches area in Toronto.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: We went rollerblading. We went on a date, and I heard it all. So I called my boss and I sent in my report, and he said, "Well, this is ridiculous. You have three months to do this. You know, <laughs> like get your money for it." <laughs> so I thought, "Well, I can just spend you know a couple months here in Toronto having fun, working to you know getting two paychecks." And yeah. So I uh, spent some more time and. After that, I was hired on permanently and I became, you know, the queen of undercover work. So that's what I did. <laughs> I worked undercovers for quite a few years and then I went into the corporate side and I worked white collar crime, which got me traveling quite a bit. Yeah, And that's another episode, again, <laughs> in, in, in itself, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of foreign false that abroad and, you know, you name it. I have done it. Surveillance is in the middle of the night. And so I did that. And being one of the only female investigators that were there, I actually wrote a manual and I started a company and I started teaching seminars on the weekend. Oh, and that's sure. how I made my living. So I worked as an investigator and I taught seminars on the weekends. And then I did loss prevention and fraud prevention with insurance companies and yeah. so on. And that that's what I did. But once I got married, my husband did not love my line of work. Right? <laughs> he thought it was, uh, you know, was dangerous yes. if we were going to start a family and so I quit. But after I quit, my boss in Toronto said, you know, we can't have you quit. I'll give you whatever you want. And he said, I'll even give you an office in London because we were living in London. Okay. And he said, you can hire your own staff and just run the investigation firm out of London. And you don't have to check in in Toronto so often. So he opened an office for me in London. but. Shortly after, I got pregnant uh-huh. with our first child, and I was very excited about that. And I should also mention that I was raising my niece at this time. Things were not great between my brother and his girlfriend. And right. anyways, I had my niece most of the time. Okay. And I was pregnant. And before the office opened one morning, someone came into our office at seven in the morning. And I was very brutally assaulted. Oh
2: my gosh.
1: And I lost that child. And I. Mm. For the first time in my life. was It was a very dark. Period. And I agreed with my husband. That I should probably not go back. Yeah. To that field. And I needed to, to change direction. Wow. So I did. And wow. Yeah. I haven't talked about this ever. (laughs) We moved here so people wouldn't know, you know, but why not? It's something that other people can learn from. I've learned that sharing my story is giving other people courage. So I need to do that. And, and going through that loss was huge. And I, when I got pregnant again, I went back to school. Okay. And that's when I went back to study psychology at Western.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: Oh, that's kind of the timeline of it. I went back later and I keep saying that both my kids should be psychology majors because they sat with me in class, either in my (laughs) belly or in my car seat, you know, as I finished. So
0: that's phenomenal. What, What incredible strength and courage and resolve. I mean, you are an incredible human being. This is... I don't know about that. I do. I, don't know I think about that's about phenomenal. That. Your story is just, wow. What you've had to deal with, what you've gone through and
1: just... I think everyone has their own and, you know, yeah, nothing do. is worse or better than it's all our own experiences For and sure. how we deal with them. And, but it's very interesting putting it into words with you, Brad, like you, yeah. you're very much helping me explore and remember certain feelings and it you know they're coming to the surface here it's a good and difficult conversation to have and I well, hope that one person gets something out of it because I,
0: I have no doubt they will and I, I appreciate you sharing and I'm glad that I could be part of this and, and pull this out of you and have you share it it's phenomenal so thank you how would you say then Lizette with all that you've told me and the experiences you've been through how have they helped shape the Lisette you are today, do you think?
1: Well, I think to the core, if you strip everything else back and you go way, way, way deep into the core, I think it gave me this sense of purpose Uh because, you know, the angel project, my businesses, my everything that I've done is it all comes back to one root. And I've been blessed enough to have been given the insight to identify that root, which most people, I think, search for their entire life
2: yeah
1: and I think if you dig through the deepest storm that you've been through the deepest pain you've ever felt and you're able to go down there you will find what makes you who you are and for me it was this purpose of always feeling alone and never wanting anybody else to feel that way yeah and that became my driving force in my everyday life. Nobody should ever have to feel that alone, and that 's why the angel project that 's why you know I started swedish school that 's why i that 's why I do everything I do in a day in a daily basis. yeah nobody should ever have to feel that alone
0: that's that's absolutely incredible and part of what you said there is where you have to go deep and therein lies a problem. I think for a lot of people that they don't want to look inside and they don't want to go that deep because they're scared of what they'll see or what they'll find. Right. So right. It needs incredible and, resolve and
1: not, to do that. And I think sometimes it's not just about the darkness of the right. path. It's they don't know how to find the beginning of the path. Right. Because they're so lost in everyday life and so preoccupied in conformity that they forget who they are and they forget how to open that door into that cellar of darkness. Yeah, And that's where we need to help people just find their way a little bit. And we can do that just by understanding, accepting and loving each other that's because right. that gives people the courage to maybe pry that door open.
0: For sure. I love what you said there about being preoccupied with conformity because so many people are they've got to fit i would say that
1: 95 percent of the population is preoccupied with conformity and that's what's wrong with society here is an example this is a very good example it is now this is statistics basically and there is a study from sweden which showed a negative correlation of high marks in primary school and financial success later on, on in life. And that study showing that if you do well, you know, in elementary school, and you have high marks in elementary school, you're going to in likelihood make less money as a, as a grown adult. Wow. And the reason that the psychologists have uncovered is because you are conforming to the standards of the school system right? and you are conforming to what the teachers want you to do. Draw within the line, tell your story. One, two, three, one, one plus one equals two, not yeah. three. Yeah. You're conforming, but you're never breaking free. You're never inventing. You're never creating. You're never, you're never going to be that one who comes up with that awe inspiring, you know, product or state of mind or book or art whatever inspires you because you're so put into that box of conformity from kindergarten on so sweden started after that study to make it mandatory of an entrepreneurship class starting in kindergarten
2: wow. it's about oh.
1: being yourself being outside it's creating it's exploring it's going against the rules yeah. And you look at Sweden, such a small country, and the amount of artists we have, the amount of products coming out of that country. I think it's working.
0: I would say I so. think it's
2: working. Yeah,
0: it, it's okay it's to color outside the lines.
2: Absolutely, it could be as
0: a matter of fact, and that's what Sweden is doing. You know, this here again. This could be a whole other podcast episode, but
2: right. the school system
0: <laughs> is severely broken. Severely. Oh, it's so broken.
1: I remember dropping my son off in Sweden. Even if you were a stay-at-home mom, you still get three hours of day of uh, day of daycare, because you need to be able to look after yourself, your home, your whatever. So I took advantage of those three hours of daycare for my son, yeah. and it was a huge snowstorm. And I went to pick him up, and I said, "You know, where is Miguel?" And they said, oh, he's sleeping outside. And I'm like, outside? It's a brutal snowstorm. I could barely get here with my car. And he was wrapped up in pelts and his rosy cheeks. And he was sleeping, you know, this thing, sleeping like a baby. That was him, right? Outside in the middle of a snowstorm. You just, you need to live. You need to, Yes. you need to connect. You need to, yeah. So it, it's just it's, a different way of being.
0: It is for sure. I can remember my kids growing up in, in elementary school and, if it was snowing or icy outside, they weren't allowed outside for recess. It's like, what is wrong with you? Pete? Like I can remember being a kid in school, in elementary school. We'd be outside sliding up and down the ice, having snowball fights. <laughs> you're not allowed to have snowball fights. You're not allowed to do this. If it, if it's too cold outside, you're not allowed to go I outside. Know. It's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Let these kids be kids. Let them experience being a child.
1: Yeah, we have a saying in Sweden, there's no such thing as poor weather, only Bad clothing. <laughs>
0: <So> <laughs> Very I
1: true. Very but true. It's, <laughs> I used to, but you know, when we came here, I realized there were a lot of Swedish kids around, and there was I wanted my my children to keep the language and yes. you know some of the things. So, being the entrepreneur that I am, I started first with a small play group, and the play group did things like the daycare would do in Sweden. Every child would be part of, of cooking something, cleaning up, all these basic necessities that we need to learn. Kindergarten in Sweden teaches those things versus the alphabet, for example. Right. We don't start the alphabet until grade seven, but that's a whole, again, different podcast.
2: Yes. (laughs) And
1: uh, so I started Swedish school Mm -hmm. and we had it started with a play group. And then I realized that if I actually got somebody who was a teacher here, I would be able to get funding from the Swedish government and get Swedish school books. And I'd be able to pay a teacher Right. So I started Swedish School Halton and it started like a playgroup in my basement. And it ended up being a school on the weekends where we had five employees, teachers. Yeah. And we rented a church building in Oakville and we had people driving, you know, one family drove two and a half hours wow. just to come to class with their kids. And Swedish School Halton is still alive and going today. I, I just don't have any part of it other than that the founder.
0: That's incredible. Is there anything yeah. that you haven't done or can't do? I mean, that is incredible. I think it's phenomenal. And again, this speaks to your character and who you are and how all of your experiences have shaped who you are as a person. I think it's amazing.
1: Well, that I mean, yeah, absolutely. It was what I wanted to do for my kids. And it grew from wanting to be a good mother, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think at the time we came back to Canada. My husband had started a medical diagnostics firm that he okay. was working hard on. And I was supporting him in that. And I was trying to find my new roots as to what would I do. Right. And when I had been younger, I worked as a model for quite a few years. That's how I paid a lot of my bills. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what to do maybe in fashion or, and I had Swedish Necklace on that a lot of people admired. It was called Sna of Sweden, and I looked up. It's, it was huge in Scandinavia, and uh, it was a very large brand over there. And I was surprised that nobody had brought it over to North America. So I called the company and I said, "Do you have a distributor here?" And they said, "No." And I said, "Well, you know, can I place a, an order as a boutique, even though I don't have a boutique?" And they said, "What? Well, what are you going to do with it?" And I said, "Well," I'll figure it out when I get the product. And um, we talked for a long time, and they were laughing at me. And I, I invested three thousand dollars in uh, jewelry. And I remember sitting in the backyard with these boxes of jewelry, and I was going, "Well, now I've gone and done it, and now I have to do something." <laughs> you know, because I, I I can't waste three thousand dollars of my, right. my children's future. And now what am I going to do? So, well, I threw a party. And it started with a home party, okay and I sold basically everything, and people wanted to order more and I thought, well, this is fabulous. And within three months, I would say I had six consultants out selling
2: wow. at home
1: parties. and after that, I spoke to a good friend of mine, Joel in Burlington, who has a boutique, Joelle's that a lot of people locally know of and she's a staple in our community she's been there 25 years and she's kind of the the go-to boutique for most women in our area and we spoke a little bit and we said well you know maybe we should put the jewelry here because it's become like the hottest thing in in the neighborhood yeah and we had a big launch with a fashion show and we stopped the home parties And within a year and a half, it was over a million dollar business. Holy! And (laughs) we uh, we did very well. I traveled to Las Vegas. We were able to attend the JCK Luxury Show. We dressed all the Miss Universe contenders. Wow! We uh, we were in New York four times a year, and we had a blast. I had so much fun building that business. It was something, you know, it was like living in a bit of a movie for a few years. It was a lot of fun. And it was a busy time because it was the same time that I was running Swedish school. And both my children had very lucrative modeling careers as kids. So it was a full time job being a, you know, Hollywood mom, as I I like to call it, Mm -hmm. taking them to auditions and doing commercials and I ended up shooting a few commercials myself back then. My, our family 2011 was actually the SC Johnson family company family of the year. Wow. And it was interesting because we were the North American corporate family. Meanwhile, we were all from Sweden, but <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was such a busy time of our lives. And I always made sure that I was home by the time the kids get out of school and I picked them up and our neighborhood kids up. And I was with them, you know. Once the day ended, so that is, so it was fun, um, and fun and busy.
0: So what happened? What happened with the jewelry company? How did it? How did it play out? How did it end?
1: Well, so things went really well with the jewelry company. I was at this time had also funded founded the Angel Project. Right. And the Angel Project was my passion. The Angel Project came about going back to what we talked about before that that route which i at that point hadn't quite identified that nobody should be alone right that i think it's every human's worst fear is to be abandoned and completely abandoned and completely alone and it actually went back to when the children were very small i was picking up a friend that was working at parkwood hospital parkwood long-term complex care hospital and i went to pick them up from work and it was christmas time there was not one decoration up in the hospital the walls looked like a horror movie there was no it was white chipping paint there were people sitting in wheelchairs you know making sounds yeah not making sounds it was it was really eerie
2: yeah and
1: she was busy and something had happened and she asked me to wait around for her for a minute. So I stood in the doorway of a patient, patient's room and I don't know, if, if you know me, I, I talk. <laughs> so I started chatting with this guy who was lying in the hospital bed and his face was turned away from me. And he was, there was a window and he was facing the window. And I started chatting with him. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting in the chair beside his bed and my friend popped her head in and said, I'm ready to go. And I said, okay. And he hadn't said a word, but I grabbed his hand and I squeezed it. And I said, okay, you know, see you later. It was nice to meet you. And he turned his face to me and he had tears pouring down his face
2: wow.
0: and he
1: squeezed my hand and he whispered, please don't go. Oh my. And that was such a powerful moment. Uh-huh. I will never forget it because that's when my soul connected with his soul. I yeah. think as cliche as it sounds, oh, I, you know, and right. we were just, we were just human.
2: Yeah.
1: We were just two souls in a room completely alone searching for connection
2: yeah
1: and I didn't know what to do so I said well you know I have I have to go and I started walking toward the door and we were leaving and then I thought if not me then who and I told her to take my car and go and I'm staying
2: yeah
1: and she thought I was nuts (laughs) she said what do you do you can't stay here and and she said I gotta go pick up my, my daughter and I'm like, well, you take my car and you just, you go. Yeah. And she left and I called my husband and I said, you know, we don't have a lot of money, but the kids are so little, they don't need anything. Go to Walmart, pick up, you know, was a VCR or DVD player and yeah. all the movies and, and grab Christmas decorations. And he was used to my, my madness. <laughs> so he didn't ask me questions. He just, you know, did what did I told it. him to do. Yeah. And, We spent that Christmas at the hospital with the patients and that was the start of the angel project. And it went from, you know, like I told you, I had Swedish school. So I started with asking those kids to draw cards and make, you know, bring in a little present and that kind of thing. That's how it started. And now I'm proud to say that we have, we have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment for patients that have been bedridden or paralyzed or abandoned for years. And the only thing stopping them from getting out of bed is the copayment for, let's say a wheelchair or a computer. And we have been able to pay that copayment for thousands of patients over the last 10 years. We have Been able to get patients out of the hospital for the first time, and we have been there when a patient has spoken for the very first time after ten years. Wow! And it is so humbling to be there for these moments and to be part of this bigger picture. It's just—it's unbelievable. There's no words for it.
0: No, that—that's phenomenal to be able to give back to human beings in that way and have that have that kind of impact an effect on other human, there is no better feeling in the world. And you honestly, it's, it's almost impossible to put it into words.
1: Oh, you can't, you can't. The kind of patients that we deal with are the ones that are completely discarded. And I always say, I wish I had a cute child or a puppy to put on the front page of, you know, our social media, but I don't. Right. And I also don't want to give away too much and, and tell some a story that I'm not supposed to tell. it's difficult to get the support yeah. that we want just because of the, the inability to share these people's stories. But we have some that have worked with us for a long time and been our patients for years. And that the reason we became the angel project was because we had to register as a charity Okay. and I phoned the hospital and I was talking to them about what they needed. And on the other line, you know, was our vice chair saying, I'm registering, but we need a name for the, yeah. for what we're doing. Yeah. And just as I said that, the nurse said, Charlie, one of the patients, is sitting by the front door in his wheelchair, and all he is saying is, when are the angels coming? When are the angels coming? And he was asking for when I was coming back. <laughs> and that's how we became the Angel Project.
0: Amazing.
1: What so a- it literally was named by the patient.
0: Yeah. What an incredible story. So do you, does the Angel Project just work specifically with one particular um, hospital or long-term, long-term care facility?
1: No, we work everywhere. We just okay. became Canadian-wide.
0: Oh, and wow. uh, we grew to
1: the point of become. thank you very much. We're very proud. It's so now you- the Angel Project Canada. And so we have hospitals all over who we work with. Mostly we work with social worker and discharge nurses that will call us and say, here's the situation. We have a patient who hasn't had a visitor for four years. Their problem is they they can't speak. They can't communicate because a Dynavox computer, they've been granted 75% paid by the government. But where is somebody who's completely disabled supposed to get that other 25%? But right. That's what I would like to know. The system is broken. Again, yeah. another podcast. That's where we come in. We we pay that co-payment, okay. We get them back on their feet. Yeah. And it's just an incredible moment. So and, and we you, work with many hospitals.
0: Right. And you guys spend time with the patients that, as you described, um, when you first started sitting with a patient, just because they had Absolutely. nobody or they haven't had any visitors and you help with funding. I think it's absolutely incredible and such amazing, selfless, inspirational work that you're doing. Congratulations on all of it. I think it's phenomenal.
1: I just think that if people were more aware, they don't understand that, for example, a patient who's been in the hospital for a long time, they're not provided with toothpaste. They're not provided with shaving cream or shampoo. Those are basic human needs that are not provided in the hospital because family members are supposed to bring them in. Number one, number two, you're not supposed to be in the hospital for that long period of time, but there are no long-term care homes that can take these complex patients. So they end up stuck in a hospital that's supposed to be, you know, a three to five day solution for three to five years. And, you know, we provide comfort kits, for example, for hundreds of patients and shampoo, conditioner, toothpaste, all those things that we take for granted. Decessant. Imagine just going, we have one day without those things. Can you imagine? And you're sick and you can't speak and you can't, you know, it's just inhumane. It, inhumane. it is. So, and I am so proud to say this. We are one of the only charities that operate with absolute minimal overhead people told me it could not be done and I said watch me (laughs) and we have put on events like couture for a cost I used to you know involve my Kingo Inc the jewelry company yeah. we had sold out events in the distillery district and everything was provided for free you know I called the president mm-hmm. of Carlsberg and I said listen I need to see you and we met and we put on a Carlsberg event oh. we had uh, you know the Carlsberg girls we had free beer they donated foosball tables you name it wow. we had free food we had we had a hundred thousand dollar bed donated by Heston's to auction off We put on fashion shows. All of it was done with no overhead. Every single person that was involved in the projects of Couture for a Cause that I used to host were in it for the right reason. They were not in it for their write-off. They were not in it for making money. They were in it because I shared a story about a patient who had nobody and they fell in love. And that's what it's about.
0: That's, that's amazing. So incredible. And again, this just goes to show and speaks and is a huge testament as to who you are as a person and the work you do. And I think it's absolutely phenomenal. I know you've gone through your own personal struggles and journey with illness and have since turned this into your right. own personal mission or advocacy work. Can you talk to us a bit about your personal struggles and journey and dealing with all this and Turning your pain into purpose.
1: Absolutely. You asked what happened to Kingo Inc. And what happened was, you know, there was a lot going on and we had the kids modeling careers. We had Swedish school was still running that I had teachers, but I was still running it. The angel project was growing. Kingo had opened an office in both in Chicago and in, in Quebec and in Burlington so we had grown exponentially, yeah, and things were very busy. And my focus was I used my office to boost the Angel Project. Okay. So all my staff had to be involved in in charity work. What you know, but they did yeah. it on on paid time, right. so it worked out well because I was able to utilize my staff, my my office space, and most of my focus was going to the patients because the need is so big and it's ever consuming when you see a need that's all you want to do is fulfill that right and you know we started the angel tournament which has run for eight years where we brought up the next generation of youth to give back they skated for a patient that can't and you know it just grew bigger and bigger and bigger and I started waking up with chest pain
2: okay
1: and I think I just thought everyone has a little bit of chest pain (laughs) it's no big deal And we had actually, at one point, taken four months off and traveled the world, which is, again, another story. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But we had
1: come back from that, and it was the most incredible experience of my life. But we thought maybe I had picked up a virus, perhaps, in Africa. Because we did a lot of volunteer work on that trip. And maybe I picked up a virus. Maybe that's what caused some of this chest pain. And I would wake up, you know, soaking wet. Yeah. Eventually I went to the walking clinic and it was between hockey tryouts because my son was in hockey and I okay. brought him and a bunch of boys to hockey tryouts. And then I ran to the walking clinic and he listened to my chest and he said, you know, we need to do an x-ray, think it's a pneumonia. And he said, I'll call you with the results. Cause I right. said, I got to go get the kids. So I left. And when I came home that night, after dropping all the kids off, there was a message on the machine and it said, call 911. We believe you have a pulmonary embolism and you need to not move and you need to go in to emerge right away. Right, And that was the start of the journey of getting my diagnosis. So what happened, I was told I had a, a ganglionic brain tumor at first because my heart rate was 27. My blood pressure was very low. Things were just, you know, very off. Yeah. Anything that was autonomic in your body wasn't functioning. Okay. So it was the breathing, the heart rate, the blood pressure, all those things. None of it was working. And because I was hooked up to monitors at the hospital, they they noticed these things. And I was moved from Joseph Brandt to Hamilton. Okay. And there, I was given another diagnosis, and I was told I had a pheochromocytoma, which was a tumor of the adrenal gland. And that was also a misdiagnosis. Oh my. And God. then things started going rapidly wrong. I had a bowel rupture, which almost killed me and put me in trauma surgery. I lost seven units of blood. I had emergency surgery. I had several sepsis, septic shocks. And again, another story for another day is right. I I was in a coma on life support. And things were just not good. And I was eventually diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And it is a connective tissue disorder. Okay. And in my case, it's affecting my vascular system. And it's basically saying that you build two houses and you build one with brick and mortar by a professional builder. And you and I build another house by just laying bricks on top of one another with no mortar. And you know, it's going to fall first. You just don't know what's going to fall first. Is it the window, the door, what's going to break? So you always have to be on high alert. I have constant hematomas, which are bleeds, and I have no immune system. So every two weeks I go for treatments, which is intravenous immunoglobin and it's IVIG it's called. Mm -hmm. And every day I do four hours of treatments through IV at home. And I'm on about 30 different medications to stabilize my heart, my breathing, my blood pressure. And in February I received a pacemaker. So I have been through a lot. And at that point of time, when I was told that the median life expectancy at that time was 45 and I was just turning 40, was when I decided to close down Kingle. So we sold a lot of the remainder of the inventory and some of the staff actually continued. But I was out of the business at that point. It was a decision that I had to make. Money is not what makes you happy.
2: No, for so, sure.
1: Yeah. So I slowed down a little bit and I spent the next four years, mostly in and out of the hospital Yeah, and trying to find the strength and, and purpose again. You know, I had to learn to walk again. I had to learn to eat. I had feeding tubes. It was, it was a difficult time and it was hard for my children to see.
0: I'm sure you yeah, so. are an incredible human being. Absolutely incredible. Wow. And so incredible.
2: I, don't know about that. I do.
0: I, I, again, I mean, your story is just, wow, full of twists and turns and unbelievable. So now you've become an advocate.
1: Right. So what happened was my, I was the first one to survive a DIC, which is the one step further than going and then sepsis. Okay. And I have so many stories of what it's like being in a coma and my whole life changed. And again, we, you know, we, we can't go into everything in detail right now, but it was life changing for me and it changed my faith and it changed my belief in life and death and coming back from, from the dead, literally twice. Yeah. Everything changes, and time is all that matters, Maybe. right? Yep. Nothing else in life matters because <laughs> sure. it's the you, the one thing you, you can't buy you can't
2: that's right
1: nothing can give you that time back yeah. so spend it's it folks. Oh, spend it wisely it's gone and yeah, so I mean everything changed with that and my doctor asked me to speak at a conference and, and help out. And I asked, why me? I said, why are you always turning to me for, you know, for support? This is my physicians now coming to me for help. Yeah. And I asked, why? I said, you're the number one in Canada at what you do. Why are you asking me? And his answer floored me. And he said, because your disease is very rare. And I've been unfortunate enough to have to give it a few times. Mm-hmm. But every time I give such diagnosis... People take it on as a wet coat and they take this heavy, wet woolen coat and they sink to the floor until it consumes them and they die. He said, I gave you that wet woolen coat. He goes, I didn't want to, but I had to. And I gave it to you. And you had to take it, but you refused to put it on. He goes, <laughs> I stood there and I stared at you and you refused to wrap yourself in this coat.
2: Yeah.
1: You held it with your arms stretched out and then you threw it on the floor. And he goes, you went about your life in the room with the coat on the floor. And I said, I'd like to throw that damn coat out the window. No, And no. he laughed. He goes, there, that's why, that's why is. you're sleeping. <laughs> And I laughed and I thought, oh, well, you're not wrong.
0: <laughs> no, see, again, this just shows who you are as a, as a person, as a human being and your character and how you uh, deal with things. And all of that, I would say you can attribute back to how you were brought up and the, th- and the situations you were put in as a kid and the things you had to deal with. And you are one of the most inspirational people I have ever spoken to. You are phenomenal, <laughs> truly. I, I am floored. I am blown away. honestly I'm not I'm not blowing smoke I mean I'm deadly serious I think it's incredible
1: I certainly don't feel that way but you know we we do with what we can with with every day and I want to make sure that people understand that it's not always easy for me either you know I, I think it's easy for people to look at me and say oh wow she's got it all together and yeah look at her who does she think she is and you know I've had that before and I think the biggest lesson is that old cliched saying that what other people think of you it's none of your business yeah, and sure. it's that once you learn that life is so much easier because you become you and you look at other people in a different way you look at them with love and compassion and and where are their roots and their story and there's always people out there that have it worse yeah you know there's always somebody who has it worse than you so yeah
0: but it would have 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 been been so easy for you to just curl up and let it consume you as the doctor said put that coat on and fall, yeah. to the floor and let it consume you. You refused. And that again, speaks to who you are. It speaks to your character. It speaks to the type of person you are. And you are just, I am blown away. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I know you and I spoke, have spoken a couple times before this, but obviously we never went into any of this and I'm just floored. Right. I think it's phenomenal. I mean, I already thought you were a phenomenal woman for the work you're doing, but all of this on top of all the work you're de- is just wow you are an amazing amazing human being
1: there are many days I certainly don't feel that way but I you know I feel like it became an additional purpose to be a voice for a lot of the people that were misdiagnosed and to learn a little bit more about the Canadian healthcare system and to dive into that and you know become an ambassador for rare disease yeah and that's something that I have certainly done, and with the help of a lot of wonderful, wonderful politicians that I've just reached out to, and people say, well, how do you do that? And I'm like, I call them. <laughs> 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 There's no magic trick, you know? Like, pick up the phone it. and call them. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's it's humorous to me when people ask, to say, like, how do you do this? How do you get there? You ask, you go,
0: yeah. you well, do. If you don't ask, you're never going to answer.
1: Yeah. You know, knock on the door, be there, and with that, I've received support from you know MPs, from mayors, from you name it. John Tory was the last one now that we just spoke with Rare Disease Day for Toronto. That, and it started with a small, you know, you start small. I did a proclamation in Burlington for rare disease, and spoke about it. And I did a protocol for Joseph Brandt that we spoke about. And, you know, now we're in seven municipalities with that when it comes to rare disease and recognizing Amazing. rare disease patients. So we you know we have to use our platforms for as sure. we can. For sure. So I appreciate you giving me this, this platform here.
0: Oh, it, it is honestly my honor and my pleasure. So Lizette, to date, what would you say is your biggest high or your greatest win?
1: That's such a good question. Like, obviously, my kids are everything. One of my biggest highs, I think, would be to see my kids. I don't know how much you you know about my kids, but when it comes to philanthropy, and that's who they are. That's just at the core of who they are. And I think my biggest win was when I asked my son for his 15th birthday what he wanted. And he told me that he wanted to give hockey equipment. To a goalie that couldn't afford to play and he started his own initiative with you know his birthday goalie giveaway which is now a huge thing where he's received awards from hockey canada and and scotia hockey and so on but for every year on his birthday he raises money throughout the year to be able to provide brand new hockey equipment to a goalie who otherwise wouldn't be able to play or who has been bullied, or who has been through something extremely difficult. So I think that's my greatest win, seeing that that is truly ingrained in who they are as humans. And that, to date, is one of my greatest wins. I mean, there's so many. Waking up every morning is a great win. And I think people need to recognize that. Opening your eyes every morning is a big damn win. Do you know how many people can't do it?
0: Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Waking. waking, I always say being able to wake up on the green side of the grass every day. It's it's huge. So that's, that's incredible. But again, this, your, your kids being philanthropists at such a young age, that all comes from you. You instilled these values in them. They saw that that's what their mom does. So they modeled after you. And again, this speaks to in volumes, your character and who you are as a person. It's incredible.
1: I just think if if I have one advice to give to parents, which I hate people, you know, parents giving parents advice and so on and so forth, (laughs) what you want to do, right? Do what makes you happy. But one thing, looking back, the best thing we ever did was take four months and travel. And people say, well, you can't, I can't afford that. We can't, you know, 90% of that trip was done on point. And oh. we lived at orphan we lived at orphanages. We stayed at you know some places were fancy because they you know they were on points. We ended up getting a big paycheck because some of our commercials were sold to Brazil. Some old some old uh, commercials that we had done. So we got a. a windfall with that just before we were going but just educating your children about diversity and different cultures and nonconformity i'm coming back to that nonconformity because i think that that's what we're doing we're just raising these little kids in a bubble with the phone and their biggest struggle in life it's going to be to break free of what we put them into and to be able to communicate To conflict resolve. Uh, Right now, what what do you do? Just stop texting somebody if you're angry. There's never a resolution. You need to have human connection. And I think that's what's causing more and more depression and more and more feeling of abandonment and loneliness. And a text doesn't do the same as an embrace does.
0: That's right. It's
1: just not the same thing. One of the greatest gifts that I get in life is to see the blue sky. And I know it sounds, it sounds like nothing. And for me, it's the biggest thing because when I was in the hospital, you're not able to get outside. Yeah. And I got to connect with the patients in a different way because I thought, wow, some of them had not been outside for years
2: yeah. until
1: I organized an outing for them. And just to feel the wind on your face to connect with nature. And I'm not a hippie by any means but you feel the roots at your feet and that the wind in your face and the sky above you, you're human, you're growing just like the world is. And yeah. you need to be embraced by nature in my mind. Yeah. So having my kids outside all the time, seeing different cultures, seeing different economic statuses, mm-hmm. knowing that every single person, you know, meeting a CEO of a huge company or working at an orphanage in, in the slum, those people are the same in different circumstance. They've only been placed in different circumstance, but they are the same. And that's the biggest lesson you can give your kids.
0: For sure. I agree with you 100%. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful?
1: That's such a good question. <laughs> it's such a hard question. But what would I say? I don't know. I think
2: <laughs> like I, I you can't it. answer it.
1: <laughs> I know it's such a good question. I don't know how to answer it. I don't know that I have a superpower. My my husband always says that my superpower is that I don't take no for an answer. But I don't know if that's a superpower. He says you're you're explosive. You you don't take no for an answer. If there's a will, there's a way. All those old cliches.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. A I, I would agree with that. that surviving yeah yeah speaking of success how do you find how do you define success what does that word mean to you
1: oh my goodness here we go (laughs) (laughs) this one it's another one success is waking up in the morning success is it's when what you say you think feel and do is all in alignment that's success because you are then complete Beautiful. But I don't think I know anyone who has that completely down. Uh-huh. What you, what you feel, what you think, what you want, and what you do—it okay. has to align for success and fulfillment.
0: Beautiful. Well said. <laughs> what is know. one of the most important things you've learned in your life, and what was your life like before you learned it, and what's your life like after you learned it?
1: Like you have some amazing questions. You know that <laughs> Thank there, you yeah. Right? They're tough. I think the biggest lesson, like, is what I mentioned a minute ago, is that we're all the same. I think that we have to look at others the way we look at ourselves, but we don't. We judge others way too harshly and we forgive ourselves too easily. So we have to hold ourselves to the same standard as we hold others to. And we have to accept. Them the way we accept you know ourselves and we have to realize that we're all the same, and I think that's really important.
0: What makes you feel inspired or like your best self, it that-
1: Blue skies, the ocean, simple acts of kindness every day, non-judgmental people. I'm the happiest when I'm in nature. I know that, and that's new for me. That's something I didn't realize before. Yeah. So I think that makes me feel the best, okay. and that I'm okay with being alone, just not lonely.
0: Yeah. What was a turning point in your life and how did it affect you?
1: Well, well, I think it was definitely the day I met Brian in the hospital. That was a huge turning point in my life. I would also, you know, if I could go back before, I would be meeting my husband Mm. in the sense of he was the first person I felt that didn't leave me for my mistakes. And he stuck by me through all of it. And I'd never had that. Right. Everything was conditional before then. And usually a spousal relationship is conditional, whether right. we like to, to say that or not, it's definitely conditional. Sure. Right. And with him, there were no conditions.
0: I would actually go as far as to say that most human relationships. I think, I honestly believe that dogs are the only creatures capable of unconditional love. They are the only. Absolutely. Love. They're, that's you know, why I
1: have two rescues.
0: <laughs> there you go humans. they're
1: sitting outside the door right now they, they, they are just yeah it's true
0: it's, it is humans are not capable of it there's always something yeah. Dogs. and I
1: think that's why we always feel alone yeah because we are
0: yeah so
1: well, this is true yeah but with I, my, my turning point was I, I think I learned to trust or depend on somebody for the first time right. when I met him And that gave me strength. And imagine if we all had people like that in our lives. Like I always say, it takes six to eight people to carry your caskets when you're dead. But how many of us have six to eight people to carry us when we're alive?
0: Wow, that is deep. That is incredible. You're right, though. I never thought about that. You're 100% right.
1: Yeah. And I think most of us would be lucky if we had one or two.
0: Yeah, I mean we sure we have tons of acquaintances and people that we talk to and right. so on and so forth, but how many people does each person in life really have that they can really truly 100% say they can depend on whenever yeah. they need them? Right. I'd argue that it'd be it'd be hard to find somebody that has two or three even. Right. For sure. Oh,
1: absolutely. And I look at my patients and, you know, you think that your parents would be the ones that are there. And the majority of my patients have been abandoned by their parents. We had a young guy. We were going to Rock in the Park in London. Uh And a nurse called me and said, one of the patients going is too sick to go. Could we replace him with this other patient? And he said, this other patient has only been only been here for two years. But at that time, we were starting out. So it was five years, no visitors, and you could end up on our list.
2: Right. And
1: she said, he's only been here two years, but he really could use this outing to rock in the park. So I said, absolutely, bring him along. And I ended up hearing his story. And he came from a family where the father was a very prominent lawyer. And the mother was a stay-at-home mom. He was 21 when he got a motorcycle and he was in a horrible motorcycle accident. Okay. And the father asked the doctor, is he going to wake up? He was in a coma and the doctor said he may or may not wake up, but if he does, he's going to be paralyzed. And we don't know if there's going to be other challenges that he'll be facing. Right. And the father said, we told that idiot not to get a motorbike. He's dead to us.
2: Wow. And-
1: three months later they had a memorial service as, at the golf and country club what and it had now been two years since he had had any visitors he was completely clear in his mind like you and i like yeah. but he was paralyzed from the neck down
2: oh.
1: we worked with him for years and he did not want to receive charity but he needed a wheelchair
2: yeah
1: and a custom wheelchair, and he was about $2,200 short, you know, and he yeah. he had nobody, he was completely alone, completely abandoned. And we paid the co payment, we got his chair, he needed a computer to communicate, we got the computer. Again, he didn't want charity. So you know, we were coming up with other reasons how he was getting these equipment. Right. And eventually, he wanted to meet me. Okay. And I met with him. And I can tell you right now that (laughs) I don't want to divulge too much, but one of the patients, he's now enrolled in online schooling at a college to become a counselor for people who are paraplegics. And to go from that, from spending a life in a bed completely abandoned, unable to move or speak, to now having the power inside you to the drive to want to continue and teach and help others through what you went through. Now that's power.
0: That is for sure. That is phenomenal. Wow. What so a heartbreaking story though. That...
1: Oh, and that's one of a hundred. Yeah. I have so many.
0: I'm sure. Yeah. So I'm sure. Lizette, what would you say is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received?
1: Oh gosh. I was a runaway once and I ran away. I, I thought I can't take it anymore. And I ran away and I always knew that there was a line that you don't cross. Yeah. And I was with a friend and she didn't have that same instinct or, you know, inside. She didn't know where that line was. I right. And we had ran away and we ended up in Toronto And there was an arcade and there was a party there. And some guys were like, come to this party and I just knew it was wrong. I couldn't, you know, I said, I'd rather sleep in a bus shelter or something. I I just knew I couldn't go. She ended up going and, you know, she got in quite a bit of trouble at that party. And the owner of the arcade came out that night Uh and he said to me, you're way too good to be here. Yeah. He said, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, go home. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And he bought me a bus ticket back to London. Wow. And I went back and that's probably the best thing I ever did.
0: Amazing. Well, I don't know. That's, that's <laughs> wow. <laughs> what would you say is one of your favorite quotes? Ah,
1: That's kind of easy, actually. <laughs> oh, you got angel. an easy one. We're <laughs> each of us angel with only one wing and we can only fly by embracing one another. And that is going back to, again, we are not meant to fly solo we need humanity. We need each other and we need to open up and we need to be able to be that wing for somebody else. And we need to allow others to be that wing for us. And that would be my favorite.
0: I love it. (laughs) What does the word empowerment mean to you?
1: So that's an interesting one because it can be taken in many different ways. Right. Empowerment would mean to me, it's almost like giving permission for somebody to grow and have power. And people need to get past empowerment to just say, I don't need your permission to be powerful. I just am. So um, it's a beautiful word in theory that we can bring people up and know that they're empowered to do what they choose to do. But I think it's even more important to go one step past that and say i don't need to empower you because you are already powerful and we need to look at ourselves as powerful creatures and again i think it goes back to conformity and asking for permission yeah so i think that's that's what it means i don't know is that okay yeah yeah
0: that's that's <laughs> totally fine that that makes total sense 100%
1: yeah yeah
0: what are you most proud of
1: my kids good gosh yeah, <laughs> that's so easy.
0: Hands yeah, my, that one's an easy. One.
1: <laughs> hands down. Oh my gosh, I'm so proud of them. There's no, uh you know, so yeah. proud of them.
0: What's your personal motto?
1: Always give more than you take. You have to. Um, it's not a free ride here, people. It's, uh, <laughs> to,
0: there are no free we lunches. Have to pay our
1: rent to open up those big blues in the morning. Yeah. There's dues to be paid and they're not monetary. So that's my motto. Okay. If I go to bed feeling that I've taken more than, than I've given, I, I can't sleep. Maybe yeah. You have, you have to give more than you take.
0: Okay. We're going to do a little rapid fire section here, Lizette. So the next grouping of questions, just be one, two, three word answer type things. Okay. All right. How would you describe yourself in one word? Love. Money or fame? Neither. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. I just not <laughs> <do> it. <laughs> If you had to pick one, if you had to.
1: Compassion. You have to add compassion. All right. Or happiness. I don't know. Yeah, I can't. Okay. They're insignificant.
0: Okay. Early bird or night owl?
1: I was an early bird my entire life until I got sick. And then now I have a hard time getting up in the morning. But yeah, I would say early bird.
0: If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Compassion. If you came with a warning label, what would yours say?
1: Don't ask me if you don't want it done.
0: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Health. What's your favorite stress-reducing activity? Nature. What's the first thing you think of when I say the word future?
1: Uncertainty.
0: If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change?
1: For people to see others as they see themselves.
0: And lastly, for the rapid fire, what makes you smile? (laughs)
1: Life.
0: That concludes the rapid fire. Back to a regularly scheduled program. (laughs) if you could sit down and have a one hour conversation with anyone in the world, alive or dead, who would it be? And why
1: can I choose myself? Sure. I'd like to choose myself at age six. Okay. And I would like to tell myself that it's going to be hard, but it's going to be okay.
0: What gives you the motivation to keep going?
1: My children.
0: If you could set up a billboard anywhere, where would you put it? And what would it say?
1: outside of a school perhaps uh-huh. dare to be you stop the conformity
0: <laughs> <laughs> conformity seems to be the common thread through the
1: yeah what's <laughs> happening i've never used that word and now it's like today <laughs> it's everywhere <laughs> Jeez. Oh, i just want people to be themselves i just think it'd be such a happier world
2: yeah yeah
1: if they and the thing is they don't know that they're not being themselves they're shaping them into this thing they're supposed to think that they want to be that they're not we're not and then we're not happy we're miserable and we don't understand until we pluck ourselves out of that situation
0: yeah for sure
1: yeah that usually comes in the form of something tragic
0: happening yes and
1: that's very sad
0: it is it is terribly sad yeah (laughs) who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why
1: My husband and, but but there's a few people, my husband, because he taught me love and that I was worth something. And one of our patients, David, who spent 15 years being moved from bed to bed, like a rag doll. And he was, you know, dropped and hurt. And he was just flipped over once a day, basically. Uh And he got a computer and The first thing he said was, thank you. And instead of all the horrible things that happened to him and his life and the suffering he went through, he said, thank you. And he was grateful to me his entire life. And I sat with him when he passed away. And I think he taught me gratitude.
0: Absolutely amazing. What do you think is the most common reason for people failing or giving up?
1: Well, it's easier to give up right Uh -uh. it's it's so easy to give up but what's the saying going i think oprah was fired at age 28 and now she's oprah
2: yeah (laughs) yeah. very
1: true so we have to obviously fail to learn but i think failing and giving up are two different things there are certain times you need to give up in order to succeed you need to give up and you need to start fresh you need to get a new set of eyes and and not you know, keep beating a dead horse as the saying goes. But it's that lack of spirit that people have and they fall into that trap of that. I can't, but you need to tell yourself what I said. Why not me? Yeah. And if I could whisper that in every child's ear, then, then I would be happy.
0: Beautiful. Speaking of failure, what is one of your biggest failures or let's call them life lessons or teachable moments? And what did you learn from it?
1: Gosh, I think I feel like, feel like a failure all the time and that's something that I try to get over but I think it was wanting to be liked was a big failure of mine it was trying to be what other people wanted me to be Mm -hmm. and learning that having one or two friends is way better than having 30 that don't care about you yeah and that was a huge lesson to learn and I think when I gave up Kingo and I became sick a lot of people disappeared you (laughs) know a lot of people Right. I didn't have tickets to private parties. I didn't have Champagne Friday like I used to host every Friday. Right. I didn't I didn't have free rides to parties and, and dinners and all those things. And where did all those so-called friends go? Yeah. And that was a tough lesson. And I feel that I had failed myself by pimping myself out to the material world. hmm. And going back to basics and seeing what love is really about and what humanity really is about. And now I literally can say that I can count my friends on one hand. Yeah. And the rest are, if you ask anybody around here, they know who I am. Right. But my friends are on one hand.
0: It's funny you say all that because it made me think of my grandparents. And they used to have people over at the house all the time, family included, showing up to play cards and and hang out and party a little bit and so on as soon as they both got sick everybody disappeared nobody came around not even family not even brothers and sisters. nobody and it's oh, is- absolutely horrible yeah and that happened that went on for years nobody bothered the only ones who bothered after were myself my parents and that was it they we were the only ones that bothered spending time with them and going to visit them and see them and whatnot but everybody else disappeared. Once those good times were gone, everyone else was gone with them.
1: Exactly. I think that's horribly sad. It's heartbreaking. It is. And it's true. You know, it's the same goes for family isn't blood. It's not. And it's the few people that show up and that's your blood and that's your family. And you always need to surround yourself with people who give as much as they take. Yeah, And you need to surround yourself with people that build you up and believe in you. That's right. And everyone else can go. I say that I have something to learn from each and every one of my friends. And I yeah. feel like I also am teaching them something at the same time. For sure. And we have that discussion all the time. Yeah. I tell them, I, I tell my friends at least once a week, the few close friends that I have, what I admire about them. Yeah. And they think funny. funny. They, they laugh and they're like, you stop saying this like why are you saying this and I said because I need you to know that these are the qualities I admire about you this is part of why I love you this is yeah. something that you see as a flaw and I see as something positive yeah so that's my family
0: yeah there's, there's one thing I can take away and I learned from that through my grandparents that just because someone is labeled as family or blood does yeah. not mean you have to have them in your lives you don't have to have a relationship with them if you're not getting anything out of it if it's not benefiting you why then why bother honestly if they're going to treat you like that that that's not family
1: I have a disabled uncle and I love him to pieces he is absolutely incredible and one of the kindest people I know and he's 70 years old now and he is of a mental age of about a seven year old Wow. And I made him the, the godfather of my daughter.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And so he is always so proud of that too. You know, every time I, I talk to him almost every day, but yeah. every day he always says, you know, I'm the godfather. I'm uh-huh. the godfather you know, it's such an <laughs> important role for him. And he's so proud, right? And, you know, my, my father in law didn't come to her christening because a quote unquote retard was oh going to be, you know, the, the godfather. And how could we do that? and he's the kindest person i know he's yeah. been there for us way more than anybody else yeah and he has loved and he loves unconditionally there is nothing i could do and my uncle wouldn't love me yeah you know
0: yeah
1: so yeah it's all about perspective, isn't it? It
0: is for sure. Lizette, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you?
1: I think we pretty much covered my entire life. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I it's, mean... been,
0: it's been awesome.
2: <laughs> I love it.
1: It's been fun. It's been fun. I think it was just the whole, I touched up on it, but travel, travel, travel. The more you see, the more you accept and the more you see that we're all the same. Yeah. So take time and reflect on who you are. And that's all I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing really I would ask myself.
0: Okay. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Oh, that's funny. It actually goes back to what you asked me earlier when Mm. you said who I could sit with. And it's I would like to hold my my hand and tell me that it's going to be really hard, but you're going to make it. And that was something that, you find your own coping mechanisms when you're little and mine was counting. And I've learned now that it's, you know, one, two, three, four, five. That's, I do that in the back of my head when I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. And I have now through psychology learned that I could only count to five at that age when I came up with this particular coping mechanism. So I learned early how to self soothe and cope with myself. And that stayed with me for my entire life. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I think I just would, if I could, if somebody would have came to me and said that it's going to be okay, that would have been magic.
0: Yeah. Lastly, Lizette, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like?
1: I don't think i need 30 seconds. I think I would just say, always give more than you
0: take. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Lizette, I am completely blown away. This conversation has been... One of the most inspirational conversations I've ever had. You are an incredible human being. You've been through so much and dealt with so much and accomplished so much. You are a true inspiration to me. I am over the moon, happy to have had you on the podcast. I am honored and just beyond grateful for having you and having you share your story and having you now, I mean, I know you've always been part of the community, but it's amazing to have you now fully immersed in the community because you we've had you on for the interview and I am just so incredibly grateful to you. You are such an amazing human being, a beautiful soul and just a gem. Thank you so much.
1: Right back at you. I'm thank you for giving me this platform to share my story and my journey. And hopefully if one person can get something out of it and maybe fight a little bit harder or be a little bit kinder, then, hey, I do it every day. So
0: Beautiful. Yeah, well, I would love to so have much. you back to explore some more of these stories at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have some fun stories, especially from the PI days in yes. the forensic psychology hospital, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I could, we could make a movie.
0: <laughs> I have no doubt.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. and yeah, It was just lovely speaking with you.
0: I appreciate you, Lizette. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Lizette Kingo. She is the founder of The Angel Project. Thank you so much, Lizette. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day.
1: Thank you, Brad. Bye.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.